Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as when fatherhood is discussed culturally, it can sometimes be treated as a sort of neutral parent, basically a parent that doesn't give birth, but is just kind of there. What have you learned as a spiritual father that might shed some light on what makes fatherhood of all kinds distinctive? I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane. Today we are joined by Bishop David Condorla, Bishop of the Diocese of Tulsa and Chairman of the USCCB's Subcommittee for the Promotion and Defense of Marriage. Oh, hey, that's us. Welcome, Bishop Condorla. Good morning, Andrew. Great to be with you, uh, particularly for this topic in this year of St. Joseph. Or should I say welcome back? Bishop Condorla was also featured in episode 39 on technology and also episode 52 on enjoying the seasons. So it's good to have you back. Yeah, it's good to be back. This uh, person of St. Joseph is so attractive to people. It's been my experience anyway, that everybody seems to react in a very positive way to St. Joseph, which is kind of unusual given how little we know about him, at least from scripture. And yet we're able to sort of glean from our own personal and human experience the kind of man he must have been from the few things that we see about him in Scripture. Uh, One of the things that we learn about him in Scripture is his responsiveness, his openness to the Word of God, to the actions of God in his life. He learns many things through dreams. He has these dreams. But I think what we need to think of there is that he is a man who loves God and is looking for God's presence in his life and is looking for direction from God in his life. That's why he's able to be responsive to these dreams. I don't think the dreams were sort of some kind of vivid living color giving him every detail kind of dreams, but through those dreams and through his own prayer and his life with God, he's able to understand that he must take Mary as his wife. Even though he has no explanation for why she should be pregnant, he doesn't let that stop him. He doesn't require from God all the final details and answers before he's willing to act. He takes uh, on Jesus as his own son. So, you know, one of the things that parents can learn from uh, understanding Joseph and the story of St. Joseph. Again, for parents, it's going to be a reminder, maybe a deepening of an awareness that it's precisely through the, the firstborn child that they learn of their own vocation as father and or mother. Each of their children, as they are conceived and as they learn of their presence, teaches them some new thing about being father or mother, because now I'm father of this child. Now I'm mother of this new child. Uh, So it's something I think for parents to pray over is that God already knows your family, particularly new parents. God already knows your whole family, not because God has the, the children stacked up on a shelf somewhere. Jones family children. They're on this they're on this shelf waiting to be sent by Amazon to to the family, but rather because God does not exist in time. So we exist in time. We learn of the children one by one as they come. But God does not exist in time. So God already knows the whole family. And again, I did a lot of marriage preparation when I was working in campus ministry, and one of the things I sometimes talked to engaged couples, and it would be true, of course, for newlyweds who don't have children yet, is to sit and to dream together, to think together 
about who God knows for our family and who God sees in our family. Uh, before you ever have children, to be asking of God and, and imagining and contemplating, God, who do you see for us? Do you see that that's a very different approach than sitting together and saying, okay, we're going to make $50,000 a year. We're only going to have X number of children. Or, gosh, we know how tough it is to raise little children, so we're only going to have XYZ children. Instead of that approach, to prayerfully say, God, we're open. We're getting married precisely so that we can be available for you. Who do you know for us? Who, who do you already see in our family? That would create such a different atmosphere in the marriage and in the relationship between the husband and wife and would result in, I'm sure, a different family. And strengthening the family uh, in the domestic church was actually the first priority in your own pastoral letter in 2018 to your diocese in Tulsa, God Builds a House. Um, so I know this is something that's been near and dear to your heart for a while. Is there anything in that document or in your diocese that's been implemented since then that sort of reflects this uh, priority? One of the things that we implemented in the pastoral plan was hiring a person to oversee natural family planning in the diocese. And that, uh, among many people and among the popular culture, of course, that is seen as simply being about the number of children, or even worse, it's seen as something uh, negative. But no, it really is about what I was just referring to. It's a completely different spirituality of marriage altogether. To recognize that God has made human persons in such a way that a husband and a wife have within the two of them everything they need in their relationship with God and between the two of them. They have everything they need to be able to discern when and how many children to have. That's a great point. And it also foreshadows something that we're going to be dealing with a little over a month from now when we have an episode covering Natural Family Planning Week at the end of July. So thanks for giving us that little teaser trailer. And I think this is probably a good place to transition to discussing Pope Francis's recent apostolic letter, Patris Corday. Mm -hmm. um, we previously discussed fatherhood all the way back in episode 14, but it warrants another look because of this letter and the year of St. Joseph, which Pope Francis uh, started and which we currently are in. So in Patris Corday, there are seven main sections where Pope Francis discusses the life of St. Joseph through seven different aspects. Beloved, tender and loving, obedient, accepting, creatively courageous, working, and a father in the shadows. Under section one, a beloved father, Pope Francis quotes St. Paul VI in saying that Joseph concretely expressed his fatherhood by making his life a sacrificial service to the mystery of the incarnation and its redemptive purpose. Do you see the sacrificial nature of fatherhood modeled by Joseph as inherently different from the sacrificial nature of motherhood as modeled by Mary? Well, I would presume that they are different just because the way that men and women relate to the world is different. And in a sense, the role that men and women play in the lives of their children is naturally different because of their masculinity and femininity. Mothers are who the children are going to run to when they're hurt often. Mothers are very nurturing. Mothers are very consoling and caring. Fathers, they perhaps are more likely to run to when they want to go out and dig a hole in the yard or something like that. Uh, things that are exterior related and so forth. 
project oriented or something. So yes, I do think that there's going to be a difference, but one of the things that's going to unite them is this common sense that they both have contributed. He's, he says so in the document as well, that they both have put their lives at the service of the redemptive mission of Jesus, of salvation history. That's something for mothers and fathers, husbands and wives to consider the fact that anybody passing Joseph on the street would not have given him a second look. He wasn't somehow different than other people. He didn't look different. He had an ordinary kind of job. He's an ordinary kind of man in many respects. And yet it's because he had placed himself so fully at God's disposal, he ends up contributing mightily to God's plan for salvation by being the father of Jesus. Well, if you're a father who considers yourself to be an ordinary person, uh, you're not someone who stands out in a crowd and so forth, uh, and you wonder what you can contribute, what are your children going to do? What are your grandchildren going to do? What are your great-grandchildren going to do in the world? Well, you may not know those things. But by raising them well, by helping them to be good Christian disciples of Jesus Christ, precisely by living your own discipleship, you will contribute mightily to God's plan for salvation, his ongoing plan for salvation for the world. We see this impact in religious practice where fathers may not necessarily understand how they influence their kids' lives. The Swiss government did a study in the 90s on how the father's practice of religious faith impacts the kids. So they looked at families where both the father and the mother regularly attended not just mass, but uh, other religious services too. And in those families where both the father and the mother attended regularly, 25% of the kids would eventually lapse in the practice of the faith. And as adults, they wouldn't attend services anymore. So 25% of the kids fell off when both the father and the mother were actively practicing. When the father was regularly attending services and the mother was not, that number of the kids not practicing as adults went up to about a third. When you switch those and the mother would attend regularly and the father wouldn't, that number goes all the way up to 60%. So the father not attending, at least in this Swiss study, had a much larger impact on the kids' eventual religious practice as adults than the mother did for some reason. What do you think the, uh, the implications of that study are? I think that there are sort of anthropological archetypes that affect us in the way that we relate to each other, that they relate to, for instance, in this case, the practice of the faith. And uh, one of them is that the feminine principle is receptive, that in the masculine and the feminine principles, the masculine tends to come into the world from the outside, whereas the feminine receives the masculine from the outside. So there's a receptiveness. And so all of us before God are feminine in that respect. All of us receive grace from God. None of us, of course, is God coming into the world from the outside. And so I think for children to see the masculine member of the family, the father, act in this receptive feminine kind of way is simply more powerful because it seems counter to his masculine nature for him to submit himself before God. And thus, when he does, it's very powerful. It's very striking. You know, as a priest and now as a bishop, uh, when I go to a prayer meeting or I go to a retreat or I celebrate a mass, if I see many fathers in the congregation, even that for me has a, a much more powerful effect than if I see 
mothers with children primarily. If I see mothers with children primarily, I'm asking, where are the fathers? And the children are probably asking that too. You know, if, if dad says to the family, mom and the kids, you guys run off to mass, I'm going to stay here and, and read the paper, or I'm going to sit at home and watch the game. I don't, I don't do that religion. Holy mackerel, that's going to have a powerful effect on the kids. So for dad to be a committed disciple, again, it, it, would, it would have the same weak effect if dad goes and the kids notice that dad goes because mom gives him a hard time if he doesn't go. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, that, that's going to also have a weak effect. And I think this dynamic, it really points to something that may be a common misperception about religion in general, but especially in the Catholic Church. People seem to think that religion is uh, favoring the patriarchy, but what you're describing, I mean, there are definitely historical instances of that, but what you're describing really shows that receiving God's grace, living a sacramental life, is much easier and more natural for women than it is for men because of that disposition to receive love rather than to go out into the world and project some sort of will over against it the way men are disposed to. And it sort of dovetails what it says in John's first letter, chapter four, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as expiation for our sins. It doesn't necessarily support a masculine way of viewing the world. It helps us see ourselves as in relationship to God in this receptive way. That makes a lot of sense to me. And it dovetails with uh, with section three of Patris Corde when Pope Francis describes Joseph as an obedient father. That means that you can't be the God of your own life because your dad is not the God of his own life either. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have in our day an exaggerated reaction to the idea of patriarchy. I think any woman who's raising children, who has a husband who is fully a man, who is a very masculine individual, and who yet is very responsive to her needs as a wife and to her needs as a mother, who plays fully and actively his part as a father in helping to raise the family and in helping to uh, foster the marital relationship he has with her, appreciates the, the very fact that he is a man that he is masculine, that he is the patriarch of this family. Patriarchy, the way that we, what we rightly react to, is a man who exalts himself over, who uses his power not for service, uses his strength not for service, but to get his way or to avoid engaging, those that's, kinds of things. That's a great distinction. Moving on to section six, Pope Francis discusses Joseph from the perspective of a working father. And mm -hmm. this is another area where recent developments in culture may lead to some confusion here. Because within the last century, it was the case that fatherhood was culturally understood as the parent who provides for the family. And mm -hmm. much more recently, that has changed. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like This isn't to say that it's a bad thing for either or both parents to be providers. And we're by no means opposed to women working and occupying the same professional responsibilities as men. It's just that this change prompts a deeper reflection on fatherhood. So now, when fatherhood is discussed culturally, it can sometimes be treated as a sort of neutral parent, basically a parent that doesn't give birth, but is just kind of there. What have you learned as a spiritual father that might shed some light on what makes fatherhood of all kinds distinctive? Well, I think there's a common 
uh, one of the common threads here is that, you know, I hear all the time people say to me, Bishop, I know you're so busy, but X, Y, and Z, and then they want to talk about, can you come and do this, or can you be available at that, and so forth. I always hate that. I always hate that people imagine that I'm so busy that I can't be a father. The purpose of my work is to be the father. So that's something I think parents uh, must keep in perspective uh, and a difficult thing to do. But work is not the end. Work is a means to the end. The vocation of being a father or being a mother, the vocation of being husband, wife, the vocation of being parents raising children, that's the vocation. I don't have a vocation to be a banker or a plumber or a nurse per se. Those are careers that I might be pursuing in order to live the vocation of being husband, wife, parent to children, but the one should not subsume the other. Right. And so children should not be deprived of their parents' attention because the parents are so busy working just for, for the sake of pursuing their, quote, career or whatever. Uh, the family should be the main focus of their pursuit of career and so forth. Now, as soon as I say that, I'm certainly fully aware and empathetic and sympathizing with parents who have to work so much just to make ends meet. That's a truly uh, sad reality. It indicates that we don't yet have an economy that is really focused on families because it shouldn't require both parents working so much that they're not around for the children just to make the families, you know, financially solvent. Right, right. That's a great point. I think that sometimes parents throw themselves into working and trying to balance out everything, family, children, the needs of the children and so forth against their work. When if they would pursue some financial, a bit more financial literacy or a more sophisticated approach to finances, they may come to understand that they're living in ways that are relatively inefficient. And that's what's causing them to have to work so much to make ends meet. I don't think it occurs to many people, but one interesting form of volunteering that I've heard about and that always struck me as a form of service that's really easy for some people to give is pro bono financial counseling for mm -hmm. people in low income areas. That seems like a little goes a long way. Mm -hmm. In the final main section, section seven, uh, the Pope discusses Joseph as a father in the shadows, and he makes reference to a novel called The Shadow of the Father by Jan Dobrzynski, which I believe you're familiar with, Bishop Kondrlov, because you told me about it first. So uh, do you want to recommend that to our audience? Yeah, I bought that novel. I suppose where I saw it was precisely in the Holy Father's letter on Joseph, but I bought the novel, and I found it wonderful. It's a delightful novel, uh, like all such historical fiction kind of novels. It takes the few historical facts that you have about something and about persons, and then it imaginatively fills in the narrative. And in the case of uh, Jan Drobozinski's understanding or impression of St. Joseph, it's really beautiful. Here is a very faithful man who comes upon Mary accidentally, sees this beautiful young maid 
who he's immediately smitten by, not only because she's physically attractive, but because he can sense a goodness in her, just the way that she carries herself, the way that she reacts to him or to anyone else. They form a relationship together. They go through all these ups and downs and travails that Mary and Joseph did actually go through prior to the marriage. And then when Mary conceived Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, and they had to go flee their home and then come back and the birth of Jesus and all of it. But one of the things, thus the title, Shadow of the Father, one of the perceptions that Joseph has of himself in that relationship is that there's a difference between Mary and Jesus and God and their relationship, Mary, Jesus, God, the Father, and Mary and Joseph. He knows that Mary genuinely loves him. He knows that. He doesn't doubt that. But he also knows that there's a way in which he's an outsider to the relationship she has with Jesus and to the relationship she has with God as the mother of Jesus. He doesn't resent it or anything, but he always knows that it's there. And it is a dramatic component of his personality and of the way that he cares for the Holy Family and understands himself within the Holy Family. So I found it to be a truly beautiful, imaginative way of praying through and contemplating, who is this Joseph that we love so much? Yeah, it's always his fault in the house. Anytime something goes wrong, nobody (laughs) nobody else is going to be sitting there. That's right. All right. That is a really great initial look at Patris Corde. So thank you for aiding us on our journey through that, Bishop Condorla. And thank you for joining us to reflect on fatherhood and the family. You're welcome. I enjoyed being with you today. Thank you for joining us. And to all you fathers out there, whether spiritual or natural, happy Father's Day. And we are back to talk about A Quiet Place, part one and part two with Kara. Welcome back, Kara. Thanks for having me. A Quiet Place, part one which was just originally titled A Quiet Place, came out in 2018 and was directed by John Krasinski, who you may know from The Office, uh, among other TV and movies. And he recently directed the new movie Quiet Place Part 2, which is currently in theaters and is the top-grossing movie of the pandemic. And we have both seen Quiet Place Part 2, which we'll talk about a little bit spoiler-free, but we are mostly going to talk about Quiet Place 2018, the original which will be spoiler-laden. Uh, so, Carrie, you also saw, watched uh, the new one and then rewatched the original one in within the last week, right? Mm-hmm. Fresh in the mind. The basic premise of A Quiet Place covers a family in rural New York dealing with a world-changing event that has completely reshaped society. These creatures have landed from an unknown source and have extremely sophisticated hearing and are also extremely violent and indestructible. And as a result, most of human society has been destroyed or uh, at the very least crippled so that anything that creates sound is a sitting duck for these, these alien creatures. So this family, the reason they've survived about a year and a half into this new era of humanity, is that they are particularly well-suited to living in silence. And the the reason for this is that the mother and the father have three children, a son, a daughter, and a younger son. And the daughter has been deaf pretty much since birth, so they were already well-suited to communicating with American Sign Language, which is why they're they're able to keep quiet. And then in the prologue of the movie, you see them slip up. Really, the, the youngest son, who's like four years old, slips up 
he acts well not really accidentally I, I feel like it's really the sister i mean I, we'll get into this but yeah the sister gives him a toy that he wanted at the store i don't think it's her fault well no no that fault fault is a whole other thing <laughs> The four-year-old sees an electronic space shuttle with sound effects in the store. He doesn't turn it on, but they see him with it, and they all freeze because they're extraordinarily cautious to the extent that they don't talk. They walk barefoot because shoes are too loud for these creatures who are not even in sight. But even though they, they might be far away, they can still hear potentially like shoes in normal footfalls. So that's the extent to which they are cautious. But they see this kid with this toy space shuttle and they immediately freeze as if he's like got a gun, basically. And John Krasinski takes the shuttle from him very carefully, takes the batteries out of it and sets it down so we can't do this, it makes too much noise. He doesn't say it, but he conveys that. And they go away. The deaf sister gives him the shuttle toy with the batteries out of it. And then she walks out and the four-year-old is right behind her. But before the four-year-old leaves, he takes the batteries. And I don't think she can be blamed for that. That's true. That's, that's true. Right. That's just four-year-old chaos. <laughs> and I, I had a moment when I, even though this is extraordinarily serious, these, these movies are both rated PG-13. There is violence and there is very personal tragedy in both of them. So th this is this is serious stuff. When the when the four year old dies, it's you know it hits hard like it would in real life. But at the same time, I had this moment when they first see him with the space shuttle at the beginning. This is this is every parent's daily routine whenever they have a four year old and the four year old picks up something that you think is out of reach, but they manage to go get it. Like how did that happen? How did they get that? <laughs> Uh, John Krasinski and Emily Blunt play the married couple, and they are also a real-life married couple. And at some point, we're probably going to refer to John Krasinski as Jim, his well-known role from The Office. So if you hear John or Jim, at least I'm talking about the same person. His character's name is Lee Abbott, but they never say it because they hardly speak in the movie. And that's one of the most outstanding things about this, is that this movie is gripping it holds your attention for its whole runtime and there is hardly any spoken dialogue i looked up the stats on it and it said there are 25 lines of vocal dialogue in the whole movie wow and i went back and i looked at another movie just to compare in the social network they say 25 lines of dialogue in the first 90 seconds of the movie also totally not fair to compare an aaron sorkin movie to a silent movie like you basically have to be extremely caffeinated to speak as quickly as any character in an Aaron Sorkin movie. And I say this as somebody who deeply loves Aaron Sorkin films. That is <laughs> like yeah, so we, the polar opposite. <laughs> yep. We got the we got the two extremes. But if you want a more representative sample than the mile a minute dialogue of Aaron Sorkin, what you can do is you can play along at home and you can count our dialogue and see how long it takes us to speak 25 lines of dialogue right now. One one of the things about the silence that that I thought was really interesting is when they do speak and there's a scene the older son and Lee go to a river to basically catch fish or like get the fish that they've caught in their traps. They're having a conversation and it is extremely jarring the first time that they actually just like voice something at a normal tone and it kind of reminded me of if you've ever been on a silent retreat you know usually a silent retreat has somebody who's giving a meditation but it's amazing how quickly you become accustomed to 
the idea of like not responding or like not saying something loudly. And I feel like everything sort of slows down in a way where normal speech becomes very jarring. And I felt like that this whole movie has that similar sort of like meditative pace to it, even though it's like extremely heightened because you know that any noise is is a danger. And it's only 90 minutes long. It's extremely, extremely fast movie. And it moves very quickly through through the plot. But it still has this sort of meditative quality, which is kind of funny because we've, you know, we talked about My Neighbor Totoro, which is very meditative as well, but in a completely different way. That's one where like it's sort of slow in its meditative quality. And this is meditation, but you are like extremely alert about what's happening. In our trilogy of rural family movies between My Neighbor Totoro, Minari, and now Quiet Place. We do have a theme. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. There's definitely the most peril in this one. Uh, It is lurking around every corner constantly. I, I hadn't thought about the possibility of a silent retreat where death lurks around every corner. I'd be willing to try that. (laughs) But, you know, to your point, Kara, there's something to that silent retreat angle. And we are not the first ones to get at this because Bishop Barron did a review of the first movie back in 2018. And he touched on a lot of the religious undertones of this movie, which we're going to brazenly steal from because he makes a lot of interesting points. The family is called the Abbott family and their home functions like an abbey. They observe grand silence. They pray before meals. I mean, they're basically they, subsistence They observe farmers. a rule of life. Yeah. They have aura et labora in order to sustain their life. They also go without shoes. They're like practically discalced. I think Bishop Barron makes that note too. Oh, and, and another thing I didn't know until I rewatched the Bishop Barron thing, which we'll link to. Apparently Trappists use their own form of sign language, or at least a system of hand signals. I don't know if it's a full sign language, but... They do have kind of their own thing. So that has a monastic precedent as well. Oh, fascinating. I didn't know that. And there's some stuff later on regarding John Krasinski, the father's sacrificial love for his family, that seems pretty vividly evoking some Christ imagery. So at the end of the first movie, he needs to be a distraction to one of the creatures for his kids to get away. And for, uh, I think, the second half of the movie, he's worn this red sweater, which at one point he takes off to give to his wife to keep her warm. And then under it, he's wearing a white shirt, and he gets wounded by the creature on his right side. And he has blood on his right side, basically in the same spot where Jesus was pierced by the the lance. And at that point, he is intentionally sacrificing himself for his kids. And while he is doing that, he is signing to his daughter, who he hasn't told, to be fair, he's not a perfect Christ figure. He's a flawed character. But for the most part, he's like a very good, loving dad. But up to this point, he hasn't explicitly said to his daughter, who can't hear, she's deaf. He hasn't explicitly said to his daughter, I love you, even though he's thought it the whole time. And right before he's about to be killed, he signs to his daughter, I love you, I have always loved you. So this loving sacrifice, which accompanies a character with a wounded side, seems pretty intentional to me from the director, John Krasinski, who uh, is a lifelong Catholic and lives the vocation of husband and father in real life as well. So I think there's something to this. I think Bishop Barron was onto something, which would not be the first time. (laughs) And some of it's subtle, I actually found the more overt part like also sort of speaks to the like just how integrated that is into their lives that it's a given that they would pray before their meal together even in these dire circumstances. They like haven't given up faith yet. 
And I think the silence of the movie, the quietness of it, is tied into that as well. I don't think it's a coincidence that they're prayerful and that they're good at being quiet. Because in this world, noise and hustle and bustle is death. And I think the experience of a lot of families is that there's just so much noise and busyness all the time that it can be difficult or impossible to have any time alone where you can just spend with God in silence. Mm -hmm. And this is a time that is carved out. This movie, I think, is kind of a way to carve out time for a fictional family for them to be in silence, which it's really helpful spiritually, even though this movie is not explicitly faith-based. And also there are some pretty violent traumatic parts of this movie. Even in spite of that, this movie sort of can still function as a meditative experience. We already mentioned that the sister gives the younger brother the toy that ultimately, you know, is his demise. And that lesson of giving somebody what they want isn't always the best idea, which not to get into any like hot button topics, but, you know, I've had plenty of conversations with Catholics about sort of, you know, the rules around chastity or something where, oh, this is all like meant to be unfun for us. Why does the church have these negative views? But the reality is the inverse. John Krasinski's character is trying to protect his family by leaving that behind and saying that like this is not good for you and like I'm looking after you to sort of put this boundary around it you know there's lots of things like that and like chastity is a good one where if it's coming from a place of love where like this is actually much better for you trust me like you want to save this for the person who you ultimately are married to and that is the best way to experience it I think it can be hard when you're like a naive child to see why that's the best thing for you and you know it's only with the wisdom of time that you can see why that's the good path forward. The experience also of when those mistakes do happen with severe consequences, that in that family, Abby, mercy is still possible and forgiveness is still possible because the daughter gives that toy to the, the younger son. And then after the fact, when you know we flash forward to the main narrative about a year later, she's blaming herself for it. And all the rest of her family is forgiving of her because A, she's being too hard on herself and B, even what maybe she did do wrong is still like something they're willing to forgive out of love because obviously she's she's very contrite about it the thing that i liked about the second movie is just that it sort of reveals a little bit more about these characters and who they are and i felt like the first movie underscored the relationship that lee and reagan who's the deaf daughter had and i feel like it, it makes the first movie more poignant just the fact that they have this distance between them because in the second movie it's so clear that like father and daughter were very close and got along really well so like the distance between them feels even more painful watching the first movie after having seen the second yeah and in the second movie there's a new character played by killian murphy who belonged to another family until his wife and child were killed by the creatures, which is a pretty common experience in that world, but not any easier for him. So they meet up with him, and he is sort of presented as a very inadequate replacement for the father, John Krasinski. And through that, you see just how much John Krasinski meant to the daughter. Yeah. Um, and Killian Murphy's character has far more weaknesses and flaws and the daughter is willing to forgive those in the second movie as well so she's able to having been forgiven in the first movie better able to exercise mercy mm -hmm. in the second movie um, and even though the second movie is kind of more actiony and not as quiet like that's still a really good theme that kind of comes across in the way the characters interact 
Yeah, definitely. So should we talk about the other major plot point in the first movie, i.e. the pregnancy? Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh (laughs) After we're done with the meditative stance, it also becomes very clear that uh, Mrs. Abbott is very pregnant, like giving birth within a matter of weeks. I think you actually see it on the calendar. Like her due date is in like two weeks, basically. Right. In complete silence, right? (laughs) So the mother, Emily Blunt, is pregnant for most of this movie. They conceived a child after this period of time started, actually after they lost their previous child. And now they're getting to it, and now they're kind of facing the reality. And one preparation they've made is they've prepared this this little box for the baby to sleep in, which is padded and soundproof and has an oxygen line running into it so the baby doesn't you know, run out of air. So they, they've done what, they, what they've needed to do, but that does not necessarily solve their problems, right? Yeah, I think it's... Interesting. I mean, even I would say non-Catholics I know are blown away by the fact that like, why would you have a baby in this environment? I do think it's interesting. It's like clearly a conscious choice that they decided to keep the baby and are like making all of these preparations. You know, I think in in today's world, it would not be unthinkable that you know, people would decide they couldn't have the baby, figure out a way to have an abortion. So I feel like the very fact that she's having the baby, it, it feels incredibly intentional. Yeah, it's a really courageous witness to life as well that they they yeah. see even more cost to themselves than having a child under normal circumstances. And they're still going ahead with it really without, I mean, they're definitely choosing it, but they're not conflicted about that choice uh, yeah. at any point. That sort of sacrificial love of bringing a new person into the world is sort of a another layer over and above the other sacrifices they make for their older children can't stop those movie catholics from from generating (laughs) new life yeah and i mean this is their there's there's their fourth child uh that's bigger than most movie families another check in the secret catholic movie column i will say i thought it was really like a beautiful portrait of family life too at one point evelyn the mom goes up to what was clearly the youngest child's old room it feels almost like a reckoning of this new child is here it feels like an acknowledgement that this child doesn't replace the loss of the other child the grief will always be there that will always be like a hole in her heart like she's kind of there sort of holding the stuffed animal like as she's holding her pregnant stomach and I found found it to be like a really poignant portrait of parenthood and particularly people who, you know, have lost. And I and I feel like I'll talk to a lot of friends who have miscarriages or things like that. And people are like, oh, well, you'll have another baby. And they're like, that doesn't like another child doesn't replace the baby that I had. That will always be a whole missing in our family. Obviously, none of this is spoken, but I thought it was like a really nice moment of her just sort of being there with the lost son and, you know, the new life that's about to come. It's a really good balance they they strike. They give voice to what it's like to lose a child, which a lot of times, even in movies, gets kind of glazed over when it does happen. Yeah, they they don't make it easy. They don't recover from it right away. Well, they also don't make it like they're in despair and can't move on with their lives. It's sort of, it feels like it's very real in the sense that they're still in this environment of danger. They still have to take care of themselves. You know, she was doing laundry and this is just a moment of, she's taking a moment set aside to sort of have the memory and to give homage almost to the the lost son but you know they don't spend every waking moment of the day sobbing about the lost son it's just sort of this like 
background music that is just always a reality. Right. There's still moments where she and John Krasinski can have a you know moment alone and dance to the Neil Young song mm. in their you know iPod earbuds. Presumably Neil Young kept right on making music and just let the creatures take him because I don't I don't think he would <laughs> choose to to be silent. I think he would just keep singing and then go out like he lived, <laughs> died doing what he loved. Speaking of how these characters spend their free time, Jim, the father, John Krasinski, whatever, he Lee, is, Lee is working. Yeah, yeah, Lee. Fine. He spends a good amount of time working on these different hearing aids and cochlear implants that they have found when, you know, traveling for supplies. And he is trying to fix, I think, his daughter's cochlear implant by kind of cobbling together different pieces from different parts. And it doesn't work throughout the movie. And she doesn't want to try it because it never works. And this is sort of metaphorical for their relationship and the tension in their relationship because she is under the impression, which you see where she's coming from, but it's not the correct impression. She's under the impression that like he somehow blames her and doesn't love her anymore, which is revealed later on that that's not what's going on here. She sees at the end just how hard he was working on trying to help her. And even though it didn't work, what it does end up doing inadvertently is discovering a countermeasure against the creatures because the feedback created in his sort of cobbled together cochlear implant creates enough audio interference that the creatures are incapacitated and vulnerable to be killed. So even after he dies, this outward reminder of his love is still living and effective towards delivering them from death, like an outward sign of an inward reality instituted by a Christ figure or something. Something like that. Telling you, there's a lot under the surface of this movie that serves as good food for thought and maybe even prayer. The most unintentionally Catholic movie you will see <laughs> this year. <laughs> the most unintentionally Catholic movie you'll ever see is Toy Story 3, but we got to save that one for another time. Oh, that's a good, yeah. good, good one to queue up. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're saving that one for a special I did occasion. Cry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's also really cool how this family integrates a member who has a disability. It's interesting because I the thing I have appreciated about the whole thing is just how normal it is to them. And the fact that it's never, I mean, obviously in the context of the movie, her deafness is a great gift and therefore not a hindrance at all. But right. I thought in the second movie, it was interesting because Killian Murphy's character is obviously like very uncomfortable with her deafness. I think anybody who has something kind of different about them like doesn't want it pointed out all the time. And the family does a nice job of like, this is just who we are. Even the kids who aren't deaf, there seems to be just like a natural instinct to like use some sign language when they're communicating to each other, which I thought was like a very interesting way that it just makes it so normalized in their lives. It's not like, oh, we do this for the daughter who can't hear us, but we're normal otherwise. It's more like, you know, we all are sign speaking at all times, especially within the family. It's like a, a natural way of being. And that's that's a good point that, you know, Killian Murphy is sort of the representative of the outside world, really doesn't understand the way things work in the in the abbey of the family. And that comes out mostly mm -hmm. through that sign language disconnect where he knows like one sign. But for the most part, he's unable to clearly communicate that sort of tension between the, the inner world of the community of the family and the outside world also kind of hit home for me as well. Like it's 
it's difficult when you're living in an intentional community to maintain that integrity of the community when the outside world doesn't understand it. Mm. Like, do you have an example from your personal experience? Just that there's like a really, a really significant difference between what you're trying to accomplish when you're living in community. Well, for me, it was discerning in seminary, but mm. for monks and nuns living in a religious community, you're trying to grow closer to God, whether in silence or not, through a life of prayer and whatever your charism is. And the outside world doesn't understand that and isn't necessarily going to make it easier for you to continue to do that. My brother was in religious life, and I remember when he decided to go in, I'm a cradle Catholic, but we had zero exposure to religious life. Like, I had had no idea really anything about it. And so when my brother went in, it was like this whole learning curve. But that's, you know, that's the reality in a, in a religious community. You are creating a new family and a new cadence of life. And I think for people who don't know that, it seems very strange and foreign and hard to, to digest. Yeah, and it's hard for Killian Murphy's character to digest. And now that I'm thinking about his struggle in the second movie, it's a pretty interesting threshold that he's on. Because when we meet him, he's been trying to hold out on his own, alone, trying to resist the craziness around him, which we see a little bit later in the kind of lawless band of roving, predatory people. He mentioned at the time, he's like, you haven't seen these people, like they're totally depraved. And he's, he seems like he's sort of teetering on the edge. He doesn't want to be them, but it's hard when you're alone to not descend. And now he meets this family, this healthy alternative, which he doesn't fully understand and doesn't really have a good ability to smoothly integrate with. But at the same time, now he has some option to pull him out of this long slide towards lawlessness. So as you listening to this, prepare to leave your quarantine and go back out into the lawless world, Killian Murphy's struggle may resonate. <laughs> yeah, I do think that's an interesting theme that the redemptive nature of family and also it was a very active choice he had to make to say, I am going to help this family. And we're going to try and do something about this. I don't think that the writing of the movie is trying to say that like left to our own devices, we all fall into despair. But I think it's true that a lot of people do despair. And the Abbott family is this very interesting example of like a refusal to despair and the fact that they did, you know, have a baby is a very obstinate act of hope for themselves and for humanity. Bringing in new life is clearly a hope for the future. And obviously, you know, because at the end of the first movie, they have sort of found the weakness, there is hope for actually defeating these creatures and potentially taking over. We will call it there. So if you haven't seen either of the Quiet Place movies, definitely check out the first one. And the second one is now in theaters. So with that, Kara, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we'll see you next time. If you want to help this podcast grow, the best thing you can do is share it with your friends. But you can also leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you.